Yeah. You can applaud, give it, get a chance. It is uh, one of the most amazing ways to live life on mission. And it doesn't happen without your generosity. Jasper, it does not happen without your generosity. And if you have signed up to serve at Give a Kid a Chance, my encouragement would be bring tissues because uh, it is an emotional day uh, when you see the looks on the faces of these kids. Well, welcome to Revolution Church. Before we get started, let's do what we always do and ask God to bless our time. Heavenly Father, uh, we love you. We're amazed that you invite us in on your mission to love people. Pray, Lord, that through opportunities like give a kid a chance, that we could be the hands and feet of Jesus. So we thank you for those opportunities. We thank you for this time today as we open up your word. I pray that uh, we would have ears to hear. Uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us wisdom as to the direction you want us to go. And I pray, Father, that you would fill me with your spirit. You know my fears and inadequacies. Uh, so I pray, Lord, that I would faithfully preach your word in a way that is helpful for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you know, Pastor Jason is well into his sabbatical. It is a 10-week sabbatical. So for the next eight weeks, we will be teaching through parables of Jesus. That's why the sign says summer series, summer stories, parables of Jesus. Did it say series yesterday? I thought it said, it's stories. Okay. Well, you can see it. So for the next eight weeks, uh, I'll preach. Uh, Pastor Chad will preach. Our student ministers, uh, Dave Arbogast, who you just saw, and Jeremy Whitehead, they will speak. And also, we're going to bring in four of our church planters that we are actually helping launch churches, including next week, Paul Richardson, who was the executive pastor at Westridge Church in Dallas, Georgia, that planted this church 19 years ago. Now we're helping him plant a church in Scotland. Scotland, Pennsylvania. It is, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's Scotland, Scotland, like kilt Scotland. I don't know if he's gonna be wearing a kilt, uh, but it's gonna be awesome. And, and I, I, wanna, I wanna spend some time uh, just in the beginning here talking about parables and why they're so important. Jesus loved him some parables, uh, spoken parables about 35 times in the Gospels. Parable actually means throw alongside. So para is alongside and uh, elbow. <laughs> uh, comes from the word bole, uh, which is to throw. So a parable is a throw-alongside story that Jesus uses to illustrate a powerful truth. Now, why does Jesus do this? If you were here during the Gospel according to John, which went on for two and a half years, uh, we just finished. But at the end of the Gospel according to John, we saw Jesus inviting the disciples to sit around a charcoal fire, to commune with him, to listen to his voice, to spend time with him. And, and that's what he's doing in the parables. He's telling us these truths, and then he's saying, hey, come sit with me. Come sit at the table. Let me explain it to you this way. 
because I, I want you to know me. I want you to know my compassion. I want you to know my joy. I want you to know the life that you can have in me. So my encouragement is that for the next eight weeks, stay engaged. And when you hear these parables, hear them not as Jesus as judge with his arms folded, but Jesus as brother with his arms wide open saying, come to me, come to me. And of course, over these next eight weeks, continue to pray for Pastor Jason and his sabbatical. Pray for his family. Pray for the church for this summer. Pray for, give a kid a chance and stay engaged in the life of the church. Jesus wants God's best for his people. That's why we're talking about these parables. So I have chosen Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. This is the parable of the cost of discipleship. Now, as always, as Dave Arbogast would say on Wednesday night to your students, we need a little context. Very good. See, they listen to you. Excellent. So Jesus, in the beginning of John chapter 14, he's hanging out at the house of the religious leaders. They invited him, but they didn't invite him to get some wisdom from him. They didn't invite him to say, oh, oh, please teach us some truth. They were trying to trick him into healing some dude on the Sabbath, which of course, Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And then in that way that Jesus invites us in, because remember, it doesn't matter who you are. He wants you to have a relationship with him. He says to the religious leaders, hey, you would have done the same thing. And they didn't have anything to say. What could they say? And then he talks to them about humility. He says, hey, you don't have to exalt yourself. The ones who are humble will be exalted. And then he reminds them he's inviting them into this incredible grand feast of everlasting life. And all these religious leaders have an excuse over here and an excuse over here of why they don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want the everlasting life. They got married, so they got to tend to that. They've got new oxen. They've got to tend to that. And Jesus says, hey, this is what I'm offering. And it's way better than anything you have going on. And that takes us to verse 25. So Jesus leaves the house of the religious leaders and he walks outside and he's headed to Jerusalem. And you know why he's headed to Jerusalem? He's going to be crucified. And he turns around and he sees this crowd of people. And that's where we're gonna pick it up. It's up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. It's all good. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, so hear the compassion in his voice. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, father, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, that does not sound very compassionate. <laughs> Sounds like he's judge laying down a gavel. But there's so much in these two verses. I'm gonna talk about three words. I'm gonna talk about crowds. I'm gonna talk about hate. I'm gonna talk about disciple. Great crowds accompanied him. See, there were, there were thousands of people. And, and I want you to hear that Jesus knows, 
hey, there's some, there's some real followers in this crowd. There's some disciples in this crowd. But then there are some people that are just following him because he's done a few party tricks. He turned some water into wine, which is always great at a party. He, he's healed some people. They know that. And, and maybe they're thinking, hey, maybe you'll heal me. Maybe you'll heal my buddy. So they're, they're following him for what they can get from Jesus. And Jesus knows that. But Jesus wants them to become followers. But right now, we would call them fans. And fans are fickle. We know fans are fickle. Think about, think about two years ago when the Braves were pretty good. The Braves were, well, they're still good. The Braves were in the World Series. And, and you could tell the true Braves fans, they have been following the Braves since Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And they've got all the gear. They've got season tickets. They go to the games. They stay to the last out. They sit in traffic at 285 and 75 and 575 to come back. They, they spend extra to get the Braves on TV. They know that, that Freddie Freeman was hitting 385 with runners in scoring position. They are diehard followers of the Braves. Anybody like that here? Okay. All right, we got some followers. Then we got some fans. And these are the people that were still walking around with a tag on their Braves cap from TJ Maxx for $7.99. And they don't know the difference between Ronald Acuna and Ronald McDonald. But they were fans. Fans, fans are fickle. Followers are faithful. Fans jump from team to team based on emotion, based on excitement. It's like when the Falcons are good. It's a bad example. It's... <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like when the Bulldogs are good, and they're good, they're great right now, back-to-back -back national champions. Yeah. But where were you when, when they were going through the lean years. Mm -hmm. You see, Jesus knows that there are some people that wanna follow him for what they can get, and there are people that wanna follow him just for him. Fans want handouts. Fans want the bobblehead. But followers want him. Fans want handouts. Followers want him. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, I've, I know you're fans. I, I know you've been to a couple of games and, and you, you, you bought the hat, but I've got season tickets for you. I've got, I've got a parking pass behind home plate for you. I'm, I'm gonna give you Ronald Acuna's phone number and you can text him before the game and say, I'm praying for you, Ronald. He's got something so much greater for us, this incredible life waiting for us. And the reason he's inviting us in is because this incredible life is gonna cost us something. But what it's gonna cost us compared to what we get, compared to the glory and the majesty and the everlasting life of Jesus Christ is nothing. And that's what he wants us to know because he loves us, he loves the followers, he loves the fans. So out of love, Jesus is gonna lay down some expectations of what it means 
to follow him. Let's go. The Bible has a unique way of describing something very powerful. Because what do we call it when we are, we are with Jesus? We've trusted in Jesus. We have a what with Jesus? A relationship with Jesus. The Bible describes Jesus's relationship to his people as a marriage. There is no more powerful relationship and example than a marriage. I met my wife 12 and a half years ago at the Starbucks on Town Lake Boulevard in Woodstock. We're sitting next to each other. 60 days later, we got engaged. That's a wow, yeah. 60 days after that, we got married. Even more wow, yeah. Yeah, I was old. I had to get it done. It was, <laughs> she was not, I was. And, and on our wedding day, I, I said all the things. I said, I do to all the things. I'll love her, honor her, serve her, hold her above Jesus. I mean, hold, hold Jesus above her. Um, but what if, I, what if I said I don't? What if I said, hey, I'll raise my hand. It's a one-day deal. One-day deal. We're married. I'll see you next year on our anniversary. That would be a, a horrible way to, to be in a relationship with my wife. But that's what some of us do in our relationship with Jesus. That's how we treat Jesus. One day we walked an aisle, one day we raised our hand, and we have paid him no never mind ever since. And he has something so much better for us. You see, time and proximity, time and proximity fuels a relationship. Time and proximity fuels our relationship with Jesus. So that's how he's talking to the crowds. He's inviting them in. He goes, I got something so much better than just a party trick. Now let's talk about the word hate. Jesus says, hey, if anyone comes to me, and anytime you hear Jesus say, come to me, I want you to just feel his arms open like this. Come to anyone who comes to me. Where do we know that from? Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who, you, all who are weary. I will give you rest. So he's saying, anyone who comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life is not worthy of me. Now, hate here is just a simple comparison. He's not saying you have to hate your mother and father. And if you leave here today, kids, and you go home and you tell your parents you hate them, that's not what I'm saying. Don't say, Pastor David said it was okay to say I hate you. He's comparing it to loving him. He's saying, love them less. Love me above all, but love them less. We are called to honor our mother and father. We're called to love our mother and father and brother and sister. But he's saying, I am preeminent. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to recognize that I am preeminent. So it's just a comparison. Matthew 10, 39 
It says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the concept of dying to self. That's the concept that Paul says he would give up everything in order to follow Jesus. Paul says in Galatians, to be crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when he does that, he gains everything in order that someday, just like we want, we don't wanna hear Jesus say it the last day, hey, depart from me, I never knew you. What do we wanna hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want. Anybody else want a well done, good and faithful servant? Yeah, you can, you can wow about that. That's gonna be a wow day. And I don't, I don't know if there are serving positions in heaven, but I wanna be on the welcome team. I, I, want, I want you all to see, me and Grim, who, who serves here, he, Grim, Grim's 82 years old, lives across the street in the Phoenix. He serves here Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, Sunday, and every special event that we have. Grim, yes. Grim and I are gonna be serving at the gates of heaven. Welcoming people. And I'm going to have resurrection hair. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm going to be like, welcome to heaven. <laughs> it's been 30 years since I've done that. <laughs> I think I hurt myself. Okay, so we've talked about the crowds, we've talked about hate, which doesn't mean hate. Now let's talk about that word disciple. He can't, you cannot be my disciple unless you understand that there's a cost. Hold me above everything else. A disciple. A disciple is more than just someone that agrees with Jesus. This is important. Now there are things that we need to agree with. So we need to agree that Jesus came to earth to live fully man, fully God. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So to believe that Jesus came to earth to live fully man, fully God, to live a sinless life, a life that we could never live, and then die a death that we deserve. So he died on the cross for our sins, took the place of a penalty that we deserve because the Bible says there's a penalty to sin and that's eternal separation from God or eternal death. He died that death for us as a substitution and then three days later, God raised him from the dead, defeating death, declaring victory over death that we might have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's why we never stray from the gospel. We keep the gospel the main thing. You've heard it many times. Keep the main thing the main thing. So it's good to know that. It's important to know that. But a disciple knows that and then fully surrenders his life or her life in humility to the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple does. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is getting it. Hey, you can know a few things about me, but if you're not willing to surrender 
to my authority and to my lordship, you can't be my disciple. I just want you to know that because I love you so much. Disciple actually means learner. So it's not a one-time thing. And, and it means in Hebrew, the word talmid, T-A-L-M-I-D. If you're taking notes, T-A-L-M-I-D, talmid. Sounds very much like Talmud, Talmud. Have you heard of, of a book called the Talmud? Okay, so the difference here, they both have the root word of learner, but a Talmud is the student. The Talmud would be the book, which is the rabbinical interpretation of Torah. So the Torah, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible, the rabbinical interpretation would be the Talmud, and that would be, that would be your employee handbook. <laughs> if, if you were Jewish, you would get this, and this is how you live your life. So you have the Talmud, the student, the Talmudim, which would be the plural. And who was taught to the Talmudim? Who taught the Talmudim? A rabbi, a rabbi, very good. A rabbi would teach the Talmud. And the goal of the Talmud in this Talmud student rabbi teacher relationship would be to become exactly like the rabbi, to live like the rabbi, to speak like the rabbi, to love like the rabbi, to give like the rabbi, to walk like the rabbi. The Talmud had one goal from the teachings and the actions of the rabbi, and that was to become like him, to the point where the Talmudim would actually follow the rabbi to the bathroom. I'm not making this up. They would follow the rabbi to the bathroom just in case there was a special prayer that they would miss. And it turns out there is a special prayer. I didn't know. But the whole point of being a disciple, the whole point of being a follower, the whole point of being a Talmudim was to be exactly like him. So you could say that the Talmudim literally sat at the feet of the rabbi. What does that sound like? Where do we find Mary of Mary and Martha in scripture? Where's Mary sitting? At the feet of the rabbi, at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is the rabbi. So you have the student-rabbi relationship. We're the student. Jesus is rabbi. That's what he's called. So here's another point. Let's go back to fans and followers. Fans, fans will sit on fences. Followers, disciples sit at feet. Fans sit on fences, disciples sit at feet. So in the context of Jesus being rabbi, he's discipled by the father, his father, to be exactly like the father. We are discipled by Jesus, and then others are discipled by us. That's what a true discipling relationship would look like. But there's an important note, and this is so important in this world today, in this culture today, the rabbi gets to direct and dictate the terms of the discipleship relationship. The rabbi gets to determine and dictate the terms of this relationship. 
So the student, the Talmudim, can't sit there and go, hey, I, I like what you said about this, but I, I don't like what you said about this. I'm, I'm not sure that God really means that. Because I want to live my life my way. And I'm not, this isn't my truth. But we don't get to do that. If Jesus is the rabbi and we're the Talmudim, Jesus gets to dictate and determine and direct the terms of the relationship. So when we obey and abide in Jesus, as we hear all the time in John 15, when we obey and abide, we're connected to him based on his teachings and his actions, and that's what makes us followers. We don't get to pick and choose what the rabbi says. We get to be imitators of the rabbi as Paul says, be imitators of Christ. You know what the word imitators means? Follower, disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay. You've heard people say, this is just the cross I have to bear. Mother-in-law's coming for two weeks. This is the cross I have to bear. The intersection at Highway 20 and Union Hill Road is closed. It took me five more minutes to get to church. This is the cross I have to bear. <laughs> Jasper, we have a, a detour going on. <laughs> you guys can get right to church. Folks had to go out of their way. Do not let a detour deter you. That's good. That should be a, that should be a point. So... When Jesus says you have to carry your cross, it's not what that means. It's not something insignificant. Because remember, he's talking to folks that live with him in that time. And they know what a cross is. They live in the Roman Empire. They know that bearing a cross, carrying a cross is not a round trip, it's a one-way trip. And if you are carrying a cross, you are carrying a cross to your crucifixion, which is where we get the name cross, get the word cross, crucifixion. And a crucifixion, they know, is a horrific, lengthy, painful, humiliating, waste-covered death. So they don't take the words of Jesus lightly when he says, you gotta bear your own cross. And what Jesus is saying to these fans is, I love you, but I want you to know, if you, if you wanna follow me, there's going to be a cost to this, and it could cost your life. We know that there are Christians around the world every day who are persecuted to the point of death for following Jesus. But Jesus says, I have something that compares to your wildest, nothing compares to this, in your wildest imagination, my joy is so much greater than anything you could ever think of. But it's going to cost you something. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard of him. You may have read his book, Cost of Discipleship. He was in a Nazi prison camp back in the early 40s. And he was there because he was not only opposed to 
the Nazi regime, he was accused of plotting to assassinate Hitler. So he's awaiting his execution, his hanging, and he writes The Cost of Discipleship, and he says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, another word would be urges him, to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, to give up everything to follow Jesus. Salvation, that's free. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. There's nothing we did. It is all based upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But to follow him, to be a disciple, it's gonna cost us our lives. Jesus goes on to explain, verse 26. This is when he starts telling the story. And you could be, you could be in school and have the most boring lecture ever. But as soon as the professor says, hey, let me tell you a story about this, you're, you perk up. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's going, I, I'm telling you these really hard truths because I love you, but then let me explain it to you a little better. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether it has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, that's the man who began to build and was not able to finish. He gives another example of going to war and being prepared in battle. Jesus is saying, look, there is a high price to following me. I don't want you signing up and being surprised. What a, what a way to look at our life with Jesus. We raise our hand, we say, I wanna trust in Jesus so I can have eternal life, and he's saying, hey, there's gonna be some trials, there's gonna be some hardship, I just want you to know that, so you count that cost up front, because a relationship that costs nothing is worth nothing. A relationship that costs nothing is worth nothing. Martin Luther, instead of the word relationship, he had the word religion in there. But I'm gonna put the word relationship in there because think about any relationship you have, whether it's a marriage, a friendship, a parent relationship. If it costs you nothing, what's it worth? What are you investing into that relationship? I have a real life example of this. Back in the 90s, 1990s, back in the 90s, I owned a comedy club in Reading, Pennsylvania. Had it for 15 years, and it, and, it, and it did okay, and it was fun. On the other side of town, a friend of mine owned a restaurant, and it was not doing okay. And he came to me and he said, hey, I'll give you 50% ownership in this restaurant for a $50,000 investment. It's like, huh, no. <laughs> Let me think about it, no. And he goes, okay, I'll give you 50% ownership, just help me run it, and it won't cost you a thing. It's like, okay. <laughs> I didn't expect him to say that. So the next day, I was 50% owner of a restaurant. 17 months later, the restaurant closed, it went bankrupt. I had become an alcoholic, and I was well on my way to divorce. True story, I did not count the cost. 
I was the guy who started something, hadn't put any thought into it, didn't count the cost, and could not finish building it. So I get this. That's why when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, you were in the restaurant business. Hey, what do you think about opening up? Nope. (laughs) How about a food truck? Nope. (laughs) Coffee? Nope. (laughs) Nothing. It's, It's not for the weak. I didn't count the cost. My return on investment was not good. Not good at all. But the return on investment of giving up our lives for Jesus is immeasurable. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who does things exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think. More than we could ask or think. The full measure of who Jesus is and his power and his majesty and his glory We can't even fathom. And all he's asking us to do is, hey, love your family less than you love me. He's so good. Because he wants more than just a hand raised at the end of a service. He wants the hands. He wants our feet. He wants our mind. He wants our spirit. He wants our fears. He wants our trials. He wants our victories. He wants it all. And he's worth it. Those who joyfully give. He doesn't doesn't want people who are going to give up and run away when it gets tough. He wants the ones that when they got to speak up about Jesus at work, they don't run and hide. He wants the ones who, when it comes time to be generous, say, hey, take it all. go back to Luke 14, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you, and he's not being vague here, it's not the word anyone, it's any one of you, meaning anyone who wants to be my disciple, who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Wow. Renounce here means Say goodbye to. Count it all as loss, as Paul says. Paul says, compared to knowing Jesus, I count everything as rubbish. And the translation of rubbish in Scripture is not garbage in the garbage can. It's actual excrement from an animal. Paul compares everything else to manure. And what Jesus is saying here is, you don't have to sell everything. You don't have to live in a tent, knock on doors, telling people about me. You can do that, and there are people that do that. They give up everything, and they sell everything, and they move to a third-world country to tell unreached people groups about Jesus. That's awesome, and if that's what you want to do, if that's what you feel God is calling you to do, that's, that's terrific. But Jesus is saying, when you make that decision to follow me, when you say, you're my Lord, you're my... You're my everything. I am your Talmudim. You're giving up, hear this, ownership of everything. You still get to manage it. 
but you manage it for his glory, for his goodness, for his kingdom. So here's a point. Disciples surrender to his lordship, give up their ownership, and live lives of stewardship. Let me explain that. When we trust in Jesus, and as I said before, a true disciple submits in humility to the lordship of Jesus Christ and his authority, because as we've heard many times from Pastor Jason, a lot of people want him to be savior, get out of jail free card, but not everybody wants him to be lord of their lives. When we submit to his lordship, we give up our ownership of our stuff, of our body, of our desires, and we live lives of stewardship. Now, a steward is someone who cares for resources. That's what we call membership here, stewardship. We don't call it membership. We call it stewardship because someday it's not even gonna be our church. It's not gonna be Pastor Jason's church. As he said before he left on his sabbatical, he's hoping to do this for another 20 years. I'm hoping he does it for another 30. And I wanna be here just greeting people at the front door. It's where I started eight years ago, just greeting people at the front door. We're stewards of what God has given us for the next people. Just like it's not your car, you're a steward of that car. It's gonna be somebody else's car someday. Abraham Kuyper, who you all know, <laughs> was the prime minister of the Netherlands in 1905. But check this out, this is brilliant. I have never seen this until this week. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, capital S, over all, does not cry, mine. So when we trust in Jesus, we become stewards because it's all his. There are no halfway followers of Jesus. There's no dipping your toe in the water of Jesus. As Tim Keller said, you either kill him or you crown him king. There's no in between. Because fans, fans are in the in between. Fans are sitting on that fence. Fans are halfway followers. And a halfway follower is a no way disciple. I may have made that a point, did I? Okay, I didn't. I don't remember. Because evidence, evidence of our belief shows up in the way we surrender to his lordship. Evidence of our belief shows up in the way we see Jesus in relationship to all of our other relationships. Relationship to Jesus and our surrender to his lordship shows up in the way we are willing to bear a cross and it may cost our lives literally and physically, or spiritually and physically. When we surrender to his lordship, we're saying, Jesus, command me. Command what I do with my time. Command what I do with my money. Command what I do with my body. Command what I do with my thoughts. Command what I do with my relationships. Command what I do with my marriage. Command what I do with my neighbors. So from an eternal perspective, Jesus is saying, there ain't nothing compared to knowing me for all eternity. But this is what it looks like. 
God's not out to make our lives easy. God is out to make our lives holy, set apart, set apart for him. So Jesus has laid this out, and then he drops the mic. Verse 35. He says, salt is good. Y'all like salt? Y'all add salt to your food? Okay. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Two manure references in one, one message. He says it is thrown away, spit out. Revelation has a word for fans. Revelation says lukewarm. And Jesus said, I'll spit out the lukewarm. I'll spit out the fans. But he uses this reference to salt. Salt is by definition in a minority position. What do I mean by that? A little bit of salt goes a long way. A little bit of salt makes a huge difference. So let's look at it relationally. Give me, give me 100 people who are loaded up with salt, loaded up with flavor, all in for Jesus, surrendered to his authority, surrendered to his lordship, love him above all things. Give me 100 salty people, turn them loose on a community, we could do some damage, right? But how about 1,000 unsalty people who maybe have said, I'm salty, I'm a Christian, but live like the world, talk like the world, give like the world, have relationships like the world, post like the world. Jesus says, they're not worth the manure pile. It's not worth, it's not worth sprinkling on the manure pile. But don't be completely discouraged. <laughs> because that could be very discouraging. If you're experiencing opposition, if you're experiencing hardship, if you've got some saltiness and you're experiencing the opposition that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I see opposition as opportunity, hey, you're on the right track. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep loving your neighbor. Keep being generous. Keep dying to self. Keep loving Jesus. But Jesus asked this in a form of a question, and he's not even on Jeopardy. He asked it in the form of a question. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Wow. Why do you think he asked in the form of a question? Jesus knows everything. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent. He's everywhere always. He invented salt. He invented NACL. And if there are any chemistry majors or chemistry teachers in the room, confirm this, can NACL lose its saltiness? It cannot. It cannot. Jesus knows it can't lose its saltiness. So he's saying, maybe, just maybe, it wasn't salty in the first place. Maybe it wasn't salt in the first place. He's saying maybe 
Maybe some of these folks weren't saved in the first place. And that's a question we've got to ask ourselves. Are we salty? Do we have any flavor? Jesus is the only one that can infuse the flavor. He's the inventor of salt. He's gonna put salt in us. So if we're not salty, is he in us? So the question we have to ask, do we have any flavor? And what does that look like? What does it look like? My wife is one of the very few young women that I know that watches every episode of Murder, She Wrote, and Matlock. <laughs> that, that was very attractive, by the way. <laughs> so at the end of any episode of a show like that, there's always a trial, and the prosecutor is presenting evidence to convict the person of their crime. Well, what if we were on trial and we were being convicted of being Christians? Would there be enough evidence? Or would we look like the world? Do our neighbors know we love Jesus? Do our coworkers know we love Jesus? Do our classmates know we love Jesus? Do the parents of the other kids on your kids' team know that you love Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? And no one can tell? I've told a story a long time ago. I don't know if you remember it. But a guy had a dream, and in the dream, he saw a friend of his who didn't know Jesus, and he's at his judgment day. We're all gonna have a judgment day in front of Jesus. We're either gonna be judged on the cross, and Jesus is gonna take our penalty, or we're gonna be judged on our last day. And on his last day, Jesus says, I'm sorry, you don't know me. Eternal separation from God for all eternity. And the guy looks up and sees his friend, the neighbor, who's having the dream. And he says to his Christian neighbor, you knew? You knew about Jesus and eternal life and you didn't say anything? That's a nightmare. That's not a dream, that's a nightmare. So I'm inviting you into something today, not to scare you. I'm inviting you into something so glorious, someone so glorious, someone so magnificent, someone with such great majesty that he says, hey, you give up your life, I'm gonna give you something way better. Way better. And then when we give up our lives, we get to go flavor everything around us. We get to flavor our neighborhood. We get to flavor our workplace. We get to flavor the other teams that our kids play on. But if we take dirt and we throw it on food, that's, and you taste it, that's disgusting. But you throw some salt, welcome to Flavortown. My, my mom's 92 years old, notorious sending things back. So the first time I introduced her to my wife, we're out in California, it's about 12 years ago, we go to a restaurant, my mom orders the fish, and she says, no salt, no seasoning, no butter. It comes out, she takes a bite, the server says, how is everything? My mom says, it has no flavor. 
Duh. <laughs> of course not. It's got, it's got nothing. It has, it has no properties. So if we want to go out and we want to make a difference in the lives of people with the aroma and the flavor of Christ, we have to have Christ in us. So if you have not trusted in Jesus, if you're not a Talmudim, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, 30, 40 years ago, I raised my hand, but I haven't given Jesus, no, never mind. It's your opportunity. You don't have to get saved again. But at some point, you've got to say, I am going to trust Jesus. And today may be your first time. We're all going to experience hardship, believers and non-believers. Jesus doesn't promise that following him is going to be easy. He says, if they hate me, they'll hate you. But Paul reminds us in Galatians, don't grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of being salt and light because in the end you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. So the way to look at this whole counting the cost thing is just no going into it. It's gonna cost. So you're not surprised at the end. So you don't grow weary of doing good. You don't know Jesus, you're gonna experience hardship. Why wouldn't you want the only one who says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you? Why wouldn't you want the only one that says, I'm gonna give you everlasting life and joy? Why wouldn't you want the one who is going to give you a supernatural peace called shalom that breaks the authority of chaos? If you're experiencing chaos, Jesus is the only way. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. I wanna give you that opportunity to trust in someone who will flavor you and favor you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is remarkable that you invite us in to not just be fans, but to be followers of the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, to relish in his goodness. So if anybody here has, has not trusted in Jesus for their salvation, with the opportunity of following him the rest of their lives, I pray, Lord, that you move in their hearts right now, that these just weren't stories. These were life-changing moments for generations. That's you. You can repeat this prayer after me. You don't have to say it out loud. You can just say, Father, I want to be a Talmudine. I want to be a student. I want to surrender my life to the Lordship and authority of Jesus. I trust that 
He is who he says he is, that he did die on the cross for my sins, that he did take a penalty that I deserve, and that you did raise him from the dead. I believe that. Will you save me that I might begin a life of surrender and stewardship and holding Jesus above all? If that was you, I'm gonna ask you to do something with everybody's eyes closed, and that is to raise your hand as high as you can get it. Raise your hand as high as you can get it and leave your hand raised. Our prayer team has a Bible for you. It's God's word. It will help you in this journey of surrender to his lordship. There's nothing more glorious and magnificent. For the rest of us, I, I think as Talmudim, as followers of Christ, we have a mandate. We have a mandate to go flavor the world. And when opposition arises, we need to know that that's an opportunity and that we are not to grow weary of doing good for in the end, we will reap a harvest. I saw something this week. It's not attributed to anyone. It said, if I knew I had one day left to live, what would I do? I thought of all of the things that I would like to do if I had one day left, the places I'd like to go, the athletes I'd like to see perform. And then it said in this post, Jesus knew he had one day left. And at the Last Supper, what did he do? He washed the feet of his enemy. If Jesus has infused you with salt, he is inviting you into this amazing journey of being his disciple to hold him above all relationships to deny yourself to steward what he has given you and to tell the world about the hope that you have father we love you we thank you for this time we give you all the praise and all the glory in jesus name amen